to your presence. We thank you that we can boldly, even as we've heard, approach your throne of grace. And we thank you for your son, Jesus. Father, we thank you for this word. We always say after we read your word, thanks be to God because your word is truth. And there are portions of your word that can strike us in a way um, that maybe we don't like at first. And Father, we pray that you would um, open our eyes and ears and hearts to see and hear and to believe what you have here for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're skipping ahead um, a good bit in this story from where we were last week. And so if you were with us last week, you know that we, we, we found David in the wilderness. We talked a lot about uh, the wilderness. He was in, in Getty, and he was running for his life. Um, secretly, he had been anointed the king, and, and yet he finds himself now being chased by his father-in-law, Saul, who is on the throne still and wants him dead. And David gets this opportunity to take Saul's life. And all of his men say, this is it. He's delivered Saul into your hands. Get him. And David can't do it because he knows that it's not his time yet. And he waits upon the timing of the Lord. And since, this, since that incident and where we are this morning, um, a lot has happened. Uh, namely, Saul is, is no longer alive. Saul has died um, in battle. If you want to read about that, go to the very end of um, 1 Samuel. You can read about it. Jonathan has also died um, in battle. And so David, um, just the chapter before the one I read, has finally, he's finally on the throne. He's finally um, become king. And almost immediately when he is on the throne, when he's been anointed king, um, the moment that we've been waiting for, then the Philistines get wind of it. And they're like, we need to go kill him. And so, man, it just never ends, right? And so David asks the Lord, will you deliver the Philistines into my hands? And, and God says to him, I mean, certainly I will. And he does. And so now with his kind of enemies taken care of, and David is now on the throne, and you think everything is going to be, you know, unicorns and rainbows from here on out. And you go, what does David do now? What's his next move? And his next move is to go and get this ark, right? He takes 30,000 men. I mean, think about that for a minute. That's a lot of people. David takes 30,000 of his most, like, choice soldiers, and he goes down to get this, this ark of God or this ark of the covenant, and the question this morning for us is why? Why is this David's first move? And so, in, in order to answer that this morning, I want to think about um, I want to think, first of all, about the significance of this ark. Um, why is this ark so significant? I want to think also, as we look at the significance of the ark, what we discover is, is the severity of, of God's holiness. And then finally, I want us to think about the sacrifice that's necessary to give us access. So the significance of the ark, the severity of God's holiness, and then the, the sacrifice that gives us access. What about the significance? What is this ark all about? If it's been a while since you've seen uh, the raiders of the, the lost ark, then maybe you need a quick um, refresher or reminder, right? So David, why, why does he want to go bring this thing into Jerusalem? What is it? And so just as a reminder, if you don't know, or if you don't know this ark is just, it's a wooden box that God told his people to make. Um, it's not huge. Um, it's almost kind of smallish. It's, it's wood. It's coated um, in gold. And on the lid, on the top of it, there's these two cherubim. It's got 
rings on its four corners so that these two poles can go in it. So, and that's the way that it's supposed to be, supposed to be carried. And inside it um, are these kind of mementos from Israel's history, these moments where God has um, shown himself to his people and, so, and shown the way that he wants to be with them and, and that he is their God and they're his people. And so you have things in there like the Ten Commandments. And you have things in there like a jar of manna, um, this bread that came down from heaven where God fed his people even while they were in the, the midst of the wilderness. But the most important thing about this ark is actually told to us um, in verse 2 of this, of this passage. And in verse 2 of this passage, we're told that the Lord of hosts sits enthroned between these cherubim. That this, is, that this ark, this box is... is also the throne of God. This is where his presence actually dwells. And you, and you may kind of go like, that's kind of weird. I mean, isn't God everywhere? Isn't God omnipotent? And yes, but there are times in which God has deliberately and particularly put himself in places that he wants to be with his people. And so he is, he is, his presence, it's not just symbolic, that his presence, as he has chosen to place it, is, is with this ark in a special way. And so naturally, because of that, there are some, there are some instructions that go along with this box. You don't just like treat it like a coffee table, right? It's not just a piece of furniture. That this thing is very, very important. And there's guidelines and there's regulations around this, this ark. And in fact, it had to be covered up so that if you looked at it, you didn't die. Um, there is power in this thing that is very potent. And, you know, for instance, like, it was kept normally, when, when the tabernacle was built, it was put in this one room that's called the Holy of Holies, and it's separated by this thick curtain, and only once a year would this high priest go behind that curtain after sacrifices were made and approach, approach this ark, and they were never sure if, if this priest was actually going to come out alive. So often they would tie a rope around his ankle in, in case he dropped dead. And so this is a pretty important object in the life of God's people, which leads to an obvious question. Where in the world has it been? Like, why, have it, why haven't we seen it, you know, or talked about it recently? And why didn't Saul have this ark with him? And the short, the, the short story is this, is that the ark had been captured about 30 years earlier by the Philistines and taken. And there's some, I won't get into the nitty-gritty details, but the, the Philistines realize, you know, that this is not something that they want to keep with them, right? Um, that it doesn't always go well to have this ark with them, and so they decide to ship it away, and they ship it to the house of Abinadab. And from that point forward, it's just been sitting in, in Abinadab's house. And so if it's just been sitting in this guy's house for a while and it's sort of forgotten or maybe just neglected and now David is on the throne, like why bother with it anymore? Um, because this is kind of the moment we've been waiting for. David is on the throne and, and there's a sense in which David um, is this kind of mediator that he is God's chosen king. And so why do you now need the ark? And I think that the reason that David, this is his first move, is that David is saying this, when we go up to the city of David, even though I've taken the throne, uh, the one who is really on the throne is God himself. And so we need to bring his throne 
um, into the midst of the city, that he is our true king. And I think David's impulse to do this is, is, is the right impulse, that he is doing um, exactly what he should do. But there's danger there, right? There's severity there. So in verse 5, what do we see? We see this throwdown party processional. They've got the ark, 30,000 men. I'm sure throngs of people have, men and women, families have gathered along in this processional. And there's lyres, and there's tambourines, and there's cassinets, right? I mean, this is a party, and they're shouting, and they're singing, and they're making their way to the city of David. And I was thinking about this earlier this week, and of just kind of what this looked like. And this image kept coming into my head um, uh, that, that I experienced back in 1998. Now, I thought about this illustration um, way before last night because I saw actually a repeat of this as I was watching something on TV last night. And if you thought you were going to get away without me making a reference for, to the University of Tennessee beating Alabama, then you're sorely mistaken. So, so back in 1998, when I was a student at University of Tennessee, um, they played, they, this is the year they won the national championship. It was really the last year they won much of anything for a while. And they were playing Florida, big rival, opening of the season, and, and they win this game. And when they win this game, the students just flood the field, and they rush toward, they rush toward the goalposts. I still don't know why we really do this, and tear down the goalposts. And so um, my roommate's picture was on the front page of the paper the next day, hanging on the goalpost. Um, I wasn't there. I, I was working that night. I had a job at a restaurant, and I had to work. And so I got off early enough to rush home, and I'm watching the, the last quarter on TV. And, I, and I'm watching this, and it's happening, like, right outside my house. And so they take the goalpost, and they do the logical thing, right? They march it out of the stadium, and they march it down the strip, like the main drag. And there's just hordes of people carrying these goalposts. And so I go out of my house, and I go up. Right next to my house was this train trestle that goes over the strip. And I go up there, and I just watch this throng of people. And they're carrying this sign of victory with them. And then they go dump it in the river, which is what they did last night as well. Um, I don't know why. I don't know why that's symbolic. But if you get that picture, then you have an idea of what this, this looks like. This is a huge processional and celebration. This is a happy time, right? It's not solemn. And Uzzah and Ohio are in charge of the ark. It's been at their house. They're the sons of Abinadab. And so they, they find this nice new cart to put the ark on. And it's a lot easier, I imagine, than carrying it. And, and maybe they even thought, like, this is probably a better system. And so we worked out a new system. They're, they're early adopters of technology. They're big into ox carts. And they, they, but they're going along, and, and the oxen stumble. And Ohio, we're told, is in front. And we're assuming, I guess, that, that, that Uzzah is in the back. And so Uzzah does the thing that any one of us would have done, that he reaches out and he grabs the ark to keep it from falling on the ground. Because, you know, just instinctually, the thought is, it's better for me to touch it than for it to touch the ground. It's better for me to grab it than for it to spill out, you know, all over the ground. And that's, what, that's his logic. That probably would have been our logic um, as well. But what's immediately apparent is that Uzzah um, was not making the correct assumption. That the passage 
if you have any doubt in this passage about what happened, you shouldn't if you just read it again because it's extremely clear. Uzzah didn't just like trip and fall and hit his head. Uzzah didn't like fall as he was trying to get the ark and it like fell on him and, and knocked him out. That the passage says very clearly the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God struck him down. And you want to talk about like a record scratch at a party? It's like, I mean, can you imagine like this huge throng of people and they're so excited and like the cassinets are going and like all of a sudden Uzzah like touches it, struck dead, dies beside the ark. And it's like the scene from Ratatouille. It's like the the rats like that all go back. Does anybody know? Anyway, um, they scatter, people scatter, right? They go go in every direction, get out of here. Um, Party's over. David is like, we're not taking that up into the city today, right? Um, that would probably be a mistake. What did, like, here's the question. What did Uzzah do wrong? I mean, that's what we're thinking when we read this passage. I mean, because you're thinking what his intentions seem to be good, and I, I imagine that they, they were good. I don't think that Uzzah had any bad intentions. And so obviously God is overreacting. And I want to say, like, very clearly, when we think that, the, the answer is God overreacting. Absolutely not. This, I think this passage, when we first read it, it rubs us the wrong way because we feel like God is being unjust. But what we don't get is that those who are sinful, like us, cannot trifle with a God that we sang about earlier who is thrice holy, who is holy, holy, holy. Um, One commentator put it this way, God is not our warm, fuzzy friend in the sky. He is holy. And we can't just approach him in any way that we want to. It's dangerous. And I think we often have this idea, especially maybe as Americans, or maybe this is just a human impulse, is that we're like, yeah, I believe in God. You know, most Americans still say that they do. I believe that God exists to bless me on my terms. That's what he's there for. I love the idea of God, that God's there so that he might bless me in the way that I want him to bless me. And when he doesn't, I kind of get rid of him. And so when the curtain is kind of pulled back, as it is in this passage pretty vividly, and God's holiness is revealed and his justice falls, we're offended because we actually think that God owes us perpetual mercy. This is why so often we're not... We're not enamored with or amazed by grace. We think, we think in giving us grace, God is just doing his job. That's what he's supposed to do, right? That God's just doing what he's supposed to do. But here's the thing, friends. He owes us nothing. He owes us nothing. So when a sinner comes before a pure and holy God on his or her own, own terms... What happened with us or what happened with any of us, you will surely die. All the precautions that God gave for the ark, think about it, they weren't for his benefit. They were for his people's benefit. Why? Because he didn't want them to die. So cover it up, have the priest carry it, do all of these things, because why? Because I want my presence with you. And so follow these things because I want to be with you. But I am holy and you are not. And in worshiping me without the right mediator is dangerous. And so David, he's angry. And the question is like, who is David angry at in this passage? And I think that 
that at first we were like, David's angry at God, and maybe that's true, but most of the commentators I read, and, and I agree with them, say that David is really, he's angry at himself. Because his impulse was right, but the way that he carried it out um, was that he was almost using the ark as sort of a trinket, that he wasn't paying it the reverence that it actually deserved, and it got someone killed. And so you can imagine that David's going, great, this is like one of the first things I do as the king of Israel is I get this guy killed. And he's mad at himself and he's afraid, um, he's afraid of God at this point. And here's what he, this is why I think he's mad at himself because you hear what he says. We actually have um, his words that he says, how can that ark come to me? And what is David saying? David is saying, I... I deserve what happened to Uzzah. How he, that, that ark can't any more come to me and me touch it than it did come to Uzzah as it slid toward him and he touched it and he would die. I should die too. How can this thing come to me? And so what does he do? He, bring, he does this kind of odd thing in a way. He brings the ark. Um, he finds the house of Obed-Edom, who is not a Hebrew. Um, he's a Gittite. And he stores it there. And imagine Obed-Edom's like, Thanks, you know. Um, kids, don't go in the room with the wooden box in it, right? And don't touch it. I mean, it's kind of a, thing, a strange thing that they put it in Obed-Edom's house, but this miraculous thing's happened is that God's presence is there and it blesses his house. And it blesses Obed-Edom's house. And David starts to get the point that Yahweh, this God, that, the one who is I am who I am, his true intent is to bless his people, not destroy them with this presence. That he wants to bless them. And so David, he gets word that the house of Obed-Edom is actually being blessed, and he knows what he needs to do. And I imagine that what he does is he goes back and he reads, like in Numbers, and he, he, he reads back through all of the regulations of how to properly handle this ark. And what we find is that he goes back down to get it. And I imagine he's, it's being carried, we're told, and so he's got four priests on every corner. And when those, those four priests walk six steps, they stop. And, and, and David makes a sacrifice. And it's a detail that doesn't really matter probably, but you may be, why six steps? I don't really know, and we don't really know. I, I imagine seven is a very, you know, whole, it's a picture of wholeness in the Bible. So I'm, I'm thinking even, you know, he goes six steps, even before they, they hit the seventh, they stop and they make a sacrifice. Why? Well, it's, I think it's pretty clear. They're, they're acknowledging that he is holy, 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 and we are not, not, not. And what we deserve is death. We deserve what these animals are getting. In his presence, we deserve to die. And then David, after this, he does the strange thing that he begins, I mean, he breaks out and he gets the linen ephod out. It's time to dance. He starts dancing with all of his might. And what is he dancing about? It's, it's not because he sees, oh, these, the blood of this ox, these bulls and goats can take away my sin. But what he sees is that God is determined to bless his people and dwell with them. And David knows, surely, if that's the case, then God, who is determined to bless his people and to dwell with them forever, is going to provide a way to be with them. You see, this ark is pointing to the fact that God actually wants 
you. He wants to be with you. But how in the world can a holy God dwell forever with sinful people? How can he do that? How can a God be both holy and just in his forgiveness of us so that he can actually dwell with us and we don't just drop dead in his, in his presence? And the, and the only answer to that is only by substitute because you and I are never going to get it together and become holy, holy, holy. But somebody has to do it in our place and somebody has to pay the penalty, the debt for the, for the ways in which we have offended this God who wants to be with us. It's only if one who is himself holy, takes the debt upon himself and he sheds his blood on our behalf. And so Jesus, as we were told, is the great high priest who goes before us to the very throne of God. And Jesus is both priest and sacrifice and that he offers himself as the perfect sacrifice. So we now understand what John meant when John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. That he's come down. And he's come down to perfectly live and love and obey because the the bad news is you can't. But the good news is that Jesus can. And so we heard the assurance of grace from Hebrews um, earlier that said, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin, no spot, no blemish. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might find mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This is what Jesus said of himself I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. That's not Jesus being a meanie. That's Jesus stating a bold fact. You aren't standing before him unless you are connected to me. It's impossible. If you rush the throne room of God without the righteousness and blood of Jesus, all you have to stand upon is your own holiness. God help us. It's impossible. Isaiah says that God then was pleased to crush him. He was pleased to crush him. Why? For our iniquities. Why? Because he loves us. One old theologian named R.C. Sproul said it this way. He said the most violent expression of God's wrath and justice is seen on the cross. If ever a person had room to complain for injustice, it was Jesus. He was the only innocent man ever to be punished by God. If we stagger at the wrath of God, let us stagger at the cross. Here is where our astonishment must be focused. Friends, this isn't some sort of, um, as you may have been taught in class, some sort of cosmic child abuse. Jesus and the Father are one. And Jesus said, no one takes my life away from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Why? Because I love you and I want to dwell with you forever. And this is the only way. This is why Jesus, who called himself, um, this is why John, rather, who called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is why he opens his, his first letter. This is this John who laid, picture it, who laid his head upon Jesus' chest. This is why he opens his first letter by hearing the words that we heard read earlier. That which was from the beginning, 
which we have heard, which we've seen with our own eyes, which we looked upon, listen, that we have touched with our own hands. Concerning the word of life, what word of life? The word that became flesh and dwelled among us. You hear John's astonishment. We touched him with our own hands. I laid my head upon his chest and, not, and I lived. And not only did I live, that through that I live forevermore. When we were, we were going through this passage this week with our staff and considering it, um, Kelly Galloway, who's our women's coordinator, one of her immediate thoughts that she, she said that she thought of that scene in the Gospels where this woman who is hem- hemorrhaging and no doctor can heal her, that she hears about Jesus. And, and the thought, we're told her thoughts, that her thought was, if I just touch the hem of his garment, if I just touch him, I will be healed. And she does, and she is. And Jesus says to her, go in peace. Your faith has made you well. Faith in me and in me alone. Anyone who calls upon the name of Jesus will be saved. You can be healed to this morning. You can come boldly before the throne of grace, but don't dare do it without faith in Jesus. Don't dare do it without resting and abiding in him. And here's the thing, folks. He's here with us now. And he invites us in a moment to come taste and touch and see his body that is broken for you and his blood that is shed for you. And because of that, we can sing together before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Let's pray. Father, how miraculous and wonderful.